This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss healthcare sharing ministries with Joanne Volk, research professor at Georgetown University's Center on Health Insurance Reforms, or CHEER. Professor Volk, welcome to the program. Thank you. Professor Volk's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, as has been well documented, the Republican Party has been and remains vehemently opposed to the Affordable Care Act. Concerning the ACA's commercial insurance reforms, in late 2017, the president signed an executive order directing federal agencies to expand what are formally termed short-term limited-duration insurance, or SDLDI, arguing SDLDI plans serve as a remedy to the ACA that the administration falsely argued makes commercial insurance coverage increasingly unaffordable. These plans, categorized as quote-unquote exempted health coverage arrangements, by the Congressional Research Service do not meet the definition of individual health insurance coverage and are therefore exempt from federal health insurance requirements. Unlike ACA insurance plans, SDLDI plans, for example, can exclude coverage for pre-existing conditions, impose annual and lifetime limits, can rescind coverage, and require higher out-of-pocket cost sharing. It's worth noting this past Friday, the U.S. District Court in D.C. in a two-to-one decision upheld the administration's 2018 final SDLDI rule. Despite the majority opinion stating SDLDI plans offer quote-unquote skimpier coverage and quote-unquote expose consumers with undiagnosed pre-existing conditions to the risk of cancellation. A cousin to SDLDI plans are health health care sharing ministries categorized by the CRS as non-compliant health coverage arrangements. With me to describe or define healthcare sharing ministries and what they offer is again Professor Joanne Volk. So with that as background, Joanne, let me ask to begin, what's generally the history or how did these healthcare sharing ministries come about? Well, um, they've been around for decades. And they're generally for religious communities that opt not to have insurance and instead to agree to share one another's medical expenses. Um, think of like the Amish community rallying around to rebuild a, a barn after the, a fire. Um, similarly, you know, folks look to their community to, to offset their health care costs rather than enroll in insurance. Um, in the ACA, when they were crafting the individual mandate that said that everyone has insurance unless you can show a good reason not to, it's not affordable, or for some other reason, there was an exemption created for people who are in healthcare sharing ministries so long as they were enrolled in one that met a specific definition that was in the Affordable Care Act. Okay, thank you. So these go back quite a long while. They're originally a religious-affiliated my understanding is less so today, and they really became more popular uh, over the last few decades. And in fact, I'll just note here, in my research, it's uncertain, but it appears that as many as a million Americans now hold 
uh, one of these uh, plans. So let's go to specifics uh, relative to what you're getting or how these healthcare sharing ministries work. So can you generally describe um, what these are, how they work? Well, so at their core, they are not insurance. So there is no guarantee that you will get payment for any of your health care costs if you are a member. But the way they are structured, um, members pay a monthly share. It's called a share monthly fee to the health care sharing ministry to be a member. Um, and then you can submit as a member, you can submit uh, your health care bills. And so long as they meet the requirements of the health care sharing ministry, they may be shared with other members who will either directly send a check to you or send the check to the healthcare sharing ministry to redistribute to the members who need help offsetting healthcare costs. But the trick is that um, it, the, though it's not insurance, there are a lot of features that look a lot like insurance to consumers that are shopping for coverage and frankly act a lot like insurance. So where there's a deductible in your insurance plan, they call it an unshareable amount where you have to pay out of pocket, you know, up to $2,000 per medical event before you can submit something for sharing. Um, the monthly contribution is defined typically by age, number of um, people in the household that are enrolled, and in some cases um, can be adjusted based on whether or not you have a healthy lifestyle or um, have risk factors of unhealthy lifestyle. Um, there's a very specific definition of what services can be covered you know type 2 diabetes but not type 1 um, prescription drugs only up to six months um, no pre-existing conditions will be covered um, without a weight dollar limits on the benefits that can be covered so there are a lot of and, and many even refer to provider network and with ramifications for going out of network you have to get prior authorization you'll pay more if you go out of network um, so there are a lot of features that look and act an awful lot like an insurance, particularly for consumers when they're looking at these documents. Um, but importantly, and I, I would argue it's actually not so close to short-term plans because at least there, I mean, there are many tricks to not pay, but there is some contract between the insurer and the enrolled that there's supposed to be payment for covered services. There is never a promise to pay in the healthcare sharing ministry. Even if your doctor says it's medically necessary and what you've gotten for care is within the definition of what should be covered. Okay, so they're, they're not insurance and they don't guarantee payment, yet you pay various fees, something that resembles a premium, deductibles, etc. So what's the attraction? Why, why would people uh, participate in one of these? Well... This is where it gets a bit murky, and I think even more so with the repeal of the individual mandate penalty. I think originally there were people, and there still are people, who sign up for these because they don't believe in insurance or they would rather not pay their money to an insurance company or would rather not be part of a plan that covers certain things that they find morally objectionable. So I should point out that they typically exclude coverage for um mental health and substance use disorder, as I said, pre-existing conditions, prescription drugs for more than six months, so not it's not useful to people with chronic conditions. Um, but um, they, so they um, will not cover those conditions. Um, but for a consumer, it looks a lot like um, insurance. And so there's some who will buy the policy because they don't believe it should be covering maternity out of outside of marriage or um, 
something they might consider the result of unhealthy living, like excessive drinking or drug use. Um, but others, I think, now are buying it because they see it as a more affordable alternative to ACA plans. And in some cases, there are brokers and websites that are presenting them as a more affordable alternative to um, ACA plans. So th- they think they're getting something akin to insurance, but for a whole lot less money. Okay. So um, so it, obviously, it's the affordability issue. Um, this presents a problem relative to how they interact with ACA or marketplace commercial or non-group plans, and that's this question of potential adverse selection. Could you can you explain that interaction? Sure. Well, anything short-term plans, healthcare sharing ministries, any plan that is allowed to discriminate based on pre-existing conditions, um, and by that I mean charge you more, cover less, exclude benefits. Um, will necessarily attract people who are healthier and those who absolutely need health care because they have a pre-existing condition or chronic condition um, will have to go to the marketplace where the ACA guarantees you can't be charged more um, or, you know, have less than the full um, array of 10 essential health benefits. So anytime that exists, that people can choose between types of coverage based on whether or not they're healthy or sick, um, that becomes a problem for the comprehensive coverage that must take all. I will say one of the big um, concerns we have about healthcare sharing ministries is we don't really know how many people are enrolled. You cited the one million um, members, but uh, uh, that I believe is a number that's been shared by the Alliance for Healthcare Sharing Ministries based on the healthcare sharing ministries they represent, a trade yes. group. Um, but there is no requirement that any healthcare sharing ministry report to anyone, federal or state, their enrollment numbers. So it's a little hard to assess the impact, the actual impact on, you know, selection against the marketplace and ACA compliant coverage, because we just don't know how many people are enrolled in these. Okay, let's go to, I'd say thank you. So let's go to, so as I said in the introduction, they don't meet uh, federal definitions and therefore they're exempt from federal health insurance requirements. So this brings us to the state level, and so my question is, to what extent are states regulating or in some ways um, protecting the consumer as it relates to uh, these plans? Well, no state regulates them as insurance. 30 states specifically say if the healthcare sharing ministry meets a definition in their law, they are exempt from insurance regulation. Um, some some states use the same definition that was in the ACA. Other states have stronger requirements. For example, you can't use brokers. Um, but so long as the healthcare sharing ministry meets the definition of the state law in those 30 states, they are explicitly exempt from insurance regulation. Um, that's not to say, though, that an insurance regulator couldn't step in where they see concerning behavior, whether operations crossing the line into something that is more like insurance or if there's sort of um, deceptive marketing. And and we heard from regulators that we interviewed for a piece we did a couple years ago that that was one of the concerns, that there are so many features that look like insurance that it could be confusing to consumers and they're not necessarily understanding what they're buying. And particularly pointing to the role of brokers in selling these because um, that in itself contributes to the confusion. If you go to a broker saying you want to buy coverage and you walk out with a healthcare sharing ministry, you think you have something 
um, that is insurance and, and will provide more coverage than you should expect under that arrangement. Right. So you're referencing, and I'll post this, this is an issue brief you wrote in August 2018 for the Commonwealth Fund. And in it, you say that 30 states have opted to exempt these from state insurance law. So they're provided to use the phrase safe harbor, which I find an odd use of the phrase in this context. Um, the remaining uh, 21, including D.C., uh, have not explicitly exempted from state law. However, the lack of explicit exemption, you're right, does not necessarily mean such states regulate them. You mentioned uh, brokers again. Uh, to what extent do we know the extent to which brokers are actively engaged in marketing these plans? And I note this also because in one of your writings, you note that um, marketing is, has may or beginning to include employer groups. And I think you mentioned one instance of marketing to a municipal government plan. Yes. Well, one of the regulators we talked to said they, they'd heard that there was a, they got a inquiry that the healthcare training ministry was marketing to a municipal employer group. Um, but we do know currently that there are some that, I mean, typically these have been designed to enroll individuals, but um, there, there is one I know, for example, Sidera um, is one healthcare sharing ministry that specifically markets to small employers. Okay, now let's let's go to um, to date. If you participated or paid a premium or enrolled in one of these healthcare sharing ministries, unlike say buying a plan on on an ACA marketplace, your payments would not. Uh, receive favorable tax treatment. Uh, you wrote last month a piece for Cheer on a recent proposed IRS rule that would would propose to grant tax advantage to individuals spending on healthcare sharing ministries. What what are the details there? So there is a definition of what counts as qualified medical expenses um, that can be deducted from your personal income taxes so long as they meet a, a threshold in the tax law um, or can be reimbursed under a health reimbursement arrangement, an HRA. Um, the Treasury Department has proposed to include in the definition of medical expenses monthly payments made to healthcare sharing ministries. Typically, that's been reserved for payments to insurers. Um, or for medical care directly, un unreimbursed uh, medical care. In this case, it's sort of a convoluted way. They've said this is close enough to insurance that will give it the same tax advantages for purposes of your deductions, but it's not insurance. So I think the, the fear is that, um, you know, we certainly saw when the individual mandate penalty was was in effect that healthcare care training ministries that um, – had the exemption or claimed to have the exemption would certainly freely share that with prospective enrollees that don't worry if you enroll in this, you won't be subject to the penalty. Um, you have an exemption under the ACA. I think the fear is that um, this kind of a sanctioning to say that they're close to insurance that they get the same tax advantages um, would further fuel marketing. I mean, certainly you could say to folks, you can contribute to a member uh, healthcare sharing ministry and be a member enroll in that instead of insurance, but get the same tax advantages for those expenses as you would if you enrolled in an insurance policy. Okay, and you do speculate or at least try to address this issue of what impact this will have 
on federal tax uh, collections. What did you conclude relative to that? It's hard to see that this will have a big um, hit on the tax revenues because the monthly shares are so small and because you have to have, I mean, the way the tax deduction works is you have to have expenses that exceed 7.5% of your adjusted mm-hmm. gross income, growing to 10% in tax year 2021. So that that would have to add up to a lot to clear that threshold and then have something to deduct. So it's, it's not necessarily the case this is going to have a big effect on tax revenues. Um, I think the bigger concern is that it will contribute to consumer confusion. Further, this view that these are close enough to insurance or in consumers' eyes when they pay their money, they expect something more than what they're going to get, um, and also be another marketing tool for those that want to, you know, we, we have seen an uptick in marketing, particularly since the repeal of the individual mandate. Um, we at least had that to sort of guide people towards something that's comprehensive in order to check the box in your taxes or show that you have a reason to not have coverage. I think with the mandate penalty gone, it's just sort of the floodgates have opened up to marketers of all kinds of coverage. It doesn't matter anymore where you land for tax purposes, um, short-term healthcare sharing ministry, fixed indemnity, all kinds of things that aren't really comprehensive coverage. I, I did. I was just curious to note, relative to having mentioned your Commonwealth August 18 report, um, are these plans more, um, uh, and in the tables you suggest the answer, are, th- are, these, ta- are these plans more uh, available in certain regions of the country than others? Well, if you go with the uh, expectation that it's, it's a, you know, more religious people that might be enrolling, then you might expect um, some variations geographically. But because of because affordability is driving many to enroll, I don't think that knows particularly geographic boundaries. Anyone who doesn't qualify for a subsidy or even has income above 300% of poverty where you might qualify for a subsidy, but it's not a lot, um, I think you know you, you would see people potentially considering a healthcare sharing ministry. Okay, my last question is, since you're an expert on this subject, and this is a... a, a sort of a standard generic question I ask. As an expert on this subject, if you were talking uh, to directly with a consumer or someone shopping uh, or weighing or considering alternative plans, what would be your advice relative to, uh, say, just uh, due diligence in health care sharing ministries? You know, just... There, it, 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 I, you can't, I can't stress enough. There's no promise to pay, so it's not at all like insurance. Um, so, you, I mean, I guess anytime you look at the front end cost and say it's a low monthly cost, I'm going to go with this. There is a reason there's a low monthly cost, um, and in this case, it's because there's no guarantee you're going to get paid. And I think people typically think, you know, if my doctor said I need it and it fits within the definition of what's covered by the plan, I should get it. If I don't, I have a legal right to appeal it to the insurer um, and ask them to reconsider their denial. And if they still say no, I have a legal right to appeal to an independent um, review organization has, you know, no stake in this, looks at the claim and says, actually, the consumer's right, you should pay. None of that applies in a healthcare sharing ministry. And in fact, even if you do fit the definition of what should be covered, they impose many other requirements like have you applied to the hospital charity program to see if you can get it paid? Have you 
find an authorization for the healthcare sharing ministry to step in and negotiate on your behalf to lower the bill. Have you, if you fell on someone's property, did you sue to see if you could get it um, paid through that avenue? Um, there are a lot of other steps you have to take that aren't even apparent in the sort of member guidelines about what should be covered. Um, that will mean that is highly, you know, unlikely that you can expect payment. Um, I mean, certainly some people have their bills paid, but there's no, there's no guarantee. So if you are attracted by a low monthly cost, there's a reason it's low monthly cost. Right. As I noted in the district court, uh, recent decision of last fr Friday, uh, the majority even admitted again that um, not only is this skimpier coverage, but they used the phrase, you get what you pay for. Uh, and I think in some, your comment is, again, to reemphasize, these operate in a regulatory vacuum. Um, so it's, it's, it's really buyer beware, I think, to say the least. So with that, Joanne, I appreciate this overview on these, let's just call them unusual offerings in health insurance. Um, and let's hope that um, maybe under the next administration, we'll get some better instructions from regulators on how these should be considered and offered uh, in the market. So with that, again, thank you. Yes, thanks for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.